Hey there, this is Kristen Ruiz and I'm here with Geneva Main, my co-host, and we have a special guest with us today. Um, Sean Munsami is here and we'll be discussing um, trauma-informed voice care and responding to trauma through policies. So let me tell you a little bit about Sean, why we're so excited to have him here. So first of all, um, he is a Guyanese-American Indo-Caribbean son of immigrants. He's an opera singer and a speech language pathologist. So you can imagine that we're really excited to talk about his perspective on voice. Uh, he earned his bachelor's in opera performance and back-to-back -back master's degrees in opera and speech language pathology from Cooney Queens College. Sean completed his clinical fellowship at Stony Brook University Hospital, where he now works as a voice specializing speech language pathologist and partnered with laryngologist Keith Chadwick to launch Long Island's first interdisciplinary disciplinary gender affirming voice clinic. He is currently pursuing a, a doctorate in speech language pathology at MGH. So Sean, we're really excited to have you here. So excited. <laughs> Thanks, <y 'all. laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> nice. Okay, so before we get into um, everything that we're going to be talking about today, let's start with our first segment, what's new and what's good. And I usually start, um, so I'll just say I'm really enjoying this uh, low key um, end of fall, beginning of winter. Um, I'm enjoying the holiday season, just got a Christmas tree and I'm waiting for it to like, um, you know, the leaves to kind of the branches to fall down so I can decorate it. And I haven't done that, I think in like three or four years. And this is your first Christmas in the new, in the new house, yes, right? Yes, yes. So it's like, having a normal life again I can do like the whole Christmas and the decorations and there's even a little snowfall and it's sticking up here in northern Westchester so that's really cool I'm enjoying that <laughs> congrats and I'm sure it's snowing by you too Kristen yes it's very cozy in here but very chilly outside <laughs> and uh Sean what's new and what's good with you you know, I just finished my semester last week at Massachusetts General. So it's it's been, yeah, it's been nice to have this time to just catch up on life and everything. <laughs> so, you know, my my partner and I got uh, engaged about, um, I, I think it was a month or two ago. So wow. <laughs> yeah. how horrible am I? I forgot the actual <laughs> month. So, you know, <laughs> we're um, we're just uh, planning our, our, our wedding now. And so, you know, tomorrow we're going to the courthouse. We're going to get all the paperwork done and um you know hopefully by the end of the year uh just tie the knot and uh, wow life is really lifing wow life is lifing, <laughs> lifing. We're, yeah and we're also in the process of looking for homes so geneva i'm sure you were tailgating right so <gasps> come to westchester <laughs> yeah i know i know <laughs> you'll probably go to long island right because that's where you work border borderline i don't think i could ever leave queens or like you know, gotcha. um, can't go too far from it. So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> nice. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Um, I think what's new and good with me, um, well, I, I love this season. I, I love the energy. I love the reminders of <laughs> hope and joy and peace and all those things that we all need. Um, but I had a chance to sing this weekend and I did a song that I did a bunch of years ago. But when I sang it last time, I was in the middle of re-coordinating a bunch of stuff vocally. And I remember that the last time I, that I sang it, it was like I, I did it and I was pleased with it, but it was one of those like, oh dear God, am I gonna get through? What's gonna happen kind of thing. And to be able to sing it now after going through the process, things stabilize. And it's just an amazing reminder of like trusting process because to go through it with confidence, you know, I had four hours of sleep, so I was exhausted. Um, I'd driven in from um, Pennsylvania quick to, it was just a crazy day. So even with sleep, and I don't don't recommend sleep deprivation and singing, but it was just amazing to, to see. I remember a time where it was like, oh, is this ever gonna happen? And then to be able to go through it and feel like, oh my gosh, that was so fun. And I think I'm just celebrating like growth and that feeling of, wow, okay, if, if those hurdles were overcome, what are the next ones? You know, So just feeling possibility, really excited about that. That's so cool. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Congrats. <laughs> All right. So we're here to kind of get to know Sean a little bit more. So we're going to uh, dig into segment number two, Experience, Strength, and Hope. 
Um, it's so good to have you. Um, I got to meet you in person for the first time at ASHA in New Orleans. And I was so looking forward to this conversation and now we're here. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey from vocal performance um, and into speech language pathology and even, um, you know, some of the things that maybe you experienced culturally or in your family around those things, because I'm pretty sure neither singing or um, speech pathology was like gung ho for, for your family coming from a Caribbean background, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More so the former. So, you know, I, um, you know, when it all started like when I was uh, applying to, to high schools and in New York, we have um, specialized high schools. And so, you know, there are the big six um, that, you know, every parent tries to, you know, aim for for their children if possible. So, you know, it, they went gun ho. Um, you're going to Cyberson, you're going to Bronx Science. Didn't get into any of them, <laughs> you know, but um, I did audition for one of the specialized high schools. Oh. And um, it was LaGuardia Performing Arts High School, you know. Um, so it was, you know, I, I I played the piano at the time. So I went in playing Billy Joel, like, I don't even remember the song. Dun, 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 dun. Um, I forgot the, the name of it. Um, but, you know, my parents were just like, you know, you're going to get in for a piano, just do the piano. And I went in for dance, I went in for drama, I did the whole gamut, um, got into everything except for, except for um, piano. So, funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sang Backstreet Boys more than that, you know, so um, <laughs> ended up going to LaGuardia for high school, you know, it kind of galvanized me to, you know, um, you know, just sing more and to just work on my confidence and to explore something I've never even thought of possibility, right? Opera, you know, I had never listened to opera um, growing up. My parents never did and know what it was, uh, you know, so, um, you know, they got to experience things. I got to experience things. You know, we would pull in a lot of my cousins to come over to the musicals and to the operettas. So it kind of got their feet wet. Um, and, you know, by senior year, you know, I was applying to colleges and they're just like, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to you know, go into medicine, go into law, you know, the whole, the whole thing. And uh, um, I, I told them, I was like, no, I, I kind of want to do music, you know, I'm kind of good at it. Um, I feel like I have a good support system. I have good training. Um, so um, I auditioned for a lot of conservatories and, um, you know, at the time they were just like, you know, really, really reconsider this. And, you know, then I ended up getting a gig singing backup for Elton John, you know, during, you know, in 2008. And uh, <laughs> they're kind of like, amazing. oh, yeah, it was fun. It was a great experience. I was 18, you know, so <laughs> it was, it was insane. I like, you don't think about those things at 18. Right. And, um, you know, it was at Madison Square Garden for a 60th birthday residency. So, you know, my dad knew who he was. So of course yeah. he was like, oh, okay, okay, let, let's do this. You know, <laughs> you know, he had bragging rights and, uh, you know, um, so, you know, kind of got there, there. Um, eventually. Yeah. yeah. Eventually. And, well, I mean, John is some, some good social proof. <laughs> good social proof. Right. And, you know, it was, always, you know, it, it was nice. It, it was really nice. And then, you know, in, um, you know, even when I was in conservatory, I remember, you know, I, there aren't many Indian people or, you know, West Indian people in operatic performance. And I remember going through the auditions and um, I remember being asked, like, um, are you a citizen? Um, would we have a problem accepting you here? You know, it, and I was asked, are you sure? Are you sure you're a citizen? You know, how, how insane is that? Because I went to schools in New York City my whole life. It never crossed or dawned my mind that this was a, something to consider, right? And that's my own privilege as an American citizen, right? Um, gosh, you know, who knows what, what others experience. Um, but yeah, I'm entering a world of opera where it is not very colored. Uh, colored voices are just now coming to the forefront and there are still problems there, you know? And so, there's a lot of travel too in opera worlds. Oh yeah, that's why I left, right? So- <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, I yeah, jumped. So, long story short, I, I went through my bachelor's, I went through my master's, and when I was in my master's in, in opera performance, I was working with a teacher who, Dr. Overholt, who I owe so much to, and Dr. Overholt really uh, spoke to physiology, she spoke to anatomy, 
um, kind of got me interested in things that I never thought I would be interested in. And one day I was leaving a rehearsal for, I think, Cozy Fontute, Mozart opera. And um, I called I called my boyfriend at the time and I was just like, you know, I don't know if I can continue doing that. I was also on tour during that time. I was doing some some work with with Josh and Josh Groban and, um, you know, also more bragging rights my parents right <laughs> kind of helping me through nice. it all social mm -hmm. support was there at that point mm -hmm. um but um you know I it kind of like made me realize I don't know if I can go through this you know um always on the road always traveling um carrying multiple outfits in your in your bag at the time multiple shoes god the shoes are the worst right so um, oh, right but yeah I I feel like in my experience touring, it was, it was great for that time. Yeah. And then it's time to For me, not for everybody, for me, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know, I feel like, I feel like my shoes are very heavy. So it's <laughs> not, it was not fun to carry. Uh, so anyway, um, long story short, I didn't know what speech language pathology was at the time, but I remember calling my boyfriend and saying, you know, I'm gonna look into something where I could, I was teaching at the time to music, um, I was teaching voice and I was like, you know, I think I could do this as in, in rehab or something. I could do this in the hospital. I feel like it's something like this has to exist. So that's how I ended up in speech language pathology. I applied literally right after I graduated um, with my MM and the rest is history. So yeah, we could talk about like being, being colored and in that, those both both of those societies right in opera and and um speech language pathology um very 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 similar although they're so different yeah that's really interesting um so in in either setting um did you have experiences of feeling othered or did you feel like um your uh background was viewed as an asset or um a novel contribution or did you have both of those experiences yeah more so more so in speech language pathology i think because i was just more more um much more was happening politically mm -hmm. at the time right so i started in 2016 Ooh. um with yeah i started in 2016 <laughs> with my with my prereqs um mm -hmm. so i think much more was just highlighted mm -hmm. um um, and I don't know if I would have felt that way. I mean, I probably would have, honestly, I probably would have. Um, but, you know, it's um, I, in opera, not so much aside from, you know, that in, that audition I told you about uh, when I was 18, right? Um, but still then it didn't really register like what was actually happening. Um, but, you know, growing up in New York City school public system, like I, I never experienced that um, even in LaGuardia. Um, but definitely in, in college, in my master's, you, you definitely hear things that you didn't really tune into at the time. And also as an artist, I feel like my mindset was very different. You know, I was, I was much more loving, accepting, more optimistic. Um, and, you know, kind of in a clinical career, you're kind of trained to be more analytical, um, especially when we're working in, in the field of communication. I was also very um, supported with my sister and um, my boyfriend, um, who my boyfriend is white. Um, and he has always highlighted things to me that he just never, that I sometimes didn't pick up on, you know, like the way someone would look at me or the way um, they would look at us, you know, cause us was, uh, yeah. you know, visually um, is, is striking sometimes. Um, In terms of, your experience of of being an Indo-Caribbean in both worlds, you felt like in the speech pathology world, it was more viewed as an asset, whereas in the opera world, maybe a, a limitation? I think so, yeah, to put it simply, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I That's interesting. Simply because of the travel experience, this is why I kind of brought it up earlier, but mm -hmm. you would think that someone who's had um, practice um, integrating into cultures other than their own, you know, and um, connecting with people in cultures on, other than their own would be valued in a profession where you do have to sing in other languages, travel all over the place, you know, talk to people from all it different communities. logical. Right? <laughs> but it wasn't viewed as like an asset. It's interesting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that's how you have to kind of really understand how 
so much of modern education, not just um, vocal performance or music can be very colonizing and mm -hmm. stripping people mm -hmm. of their of their cultures instead of embracing it. Um, yeah. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think also colored voices, like, you know, our anatomy is different from the general opera singer, right? And that's going to affect our resonance. So, you know, I think that's that's something that I just recently, well, not recently, maybe in the last like three years, just like, I wish I knew that while I was in opera, you know, to know that a bright sound was not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just anatomy. I have a very high palatal arc, you know, <laughs> so, you know, um, and not saying it was a bad thing, but, you know, yeah. having someone judge your voice and not knowing why that would be, right? But now knowing, you know, I think all of us here are informed singers, right? So knowing that, hey, you know, there's there are things that could be, you know, thought of differently and phrased differently in a way that wouldn't be as traumatic, right? Right, that's interesting. I think that's really powerful because um, I think if we could make functional freedom of sound and then letting the artist like interpret the, the literature using that functionally free instrument, mm -hmm. I wish that that was the bigger deal than, hey, I want you to sound like this obligation that has been put by, I don't even know who the they is sometimes, but making that that functional freedom the deal. And then you get to see, hey, what colors come out of your voice as opposed to trying to contort to some preconceived decision about what the sound should be. Yeah. I agree, Kristen. And I feel like, isn't that art? Isn't art? That's what I thought. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because. I think it should be about the expression of, of the poetry. It should be the expression of the artist collaborating with one another. It shouldn't only be about quality. Now, of course, quality has to be somewhat there, right? But quality should not be universal. It should, it should be expressed at an individual level because that's what art, that's what art is. Exactly. exactly. So, so let me ask you, so other than the traveling, because you know, you saw some really pretty significant success in early on, um, other than the awareness that there would be a lot of traveling, did those experiences color your view of, of continuing to be an opera singer? Or was it purely just, this is the lifestyle that I'm not choosing for myself? <laughs> okay. I, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what it was. So it was, it was not about, um, experiences with color or experiences with any trauma with mm -hmm. within the field um i think maybe because i i did start so early at a at a very um rigorous state so i maybe i don't know maybe something was there that helped me through it but um and i think i think also being gay helps out a little bit you know because you're kind of you kind of build a skin before you even get to you know, gotcha. to a lot of the higher level schools but that's a whole different story um but uh but I think that I think that the majority of it was me wanting to start a family, um, seeing that my lifestyle was really tailored to, you know, vocal health and resting. Um, Rest is good. Know, what we just spoke <laughs> about, Kristen, right? So <laughs> I, I think that was more of it. Yeah. Of the lifestyle. Okay. And um, I have another thought about, you know, your transition so you started pretty young at LaGuardia for like 14 15. Mm -hmm. yeah. um your time in LaGuardia and your time in Cooney uh Queens University doing um music studies did you have any sense of preparation around this is what your life will look like as a performer did they talk to you about those kinds of things or no I'm curious no, about that. I don't think so. I don't think so. I remember within conservatory, we were told, um, you know, to, to just know how to say, would you like fries with that? You know, and, you know, it was the experience of a lot of us. Um, you know, luckily, I was I was able to supplement uh, my studies with with art. Um, so I was I did photography and and um, I taught piano and voice. Um, but, you know, um, but yeah, there you have to there is some kind of mention of it. Um, but, but yeah, it, I, don't, I don't recall it ever being like a formal class or a formal seminar, which would be really helpful, right? <laughs> yes, like, you know, that's one of the things I appreciate about speech pathology now, as opposed to when I started, you know, almost 20 years ago now is there's way more discussions now about well-being mm. and managing yourself because you are a caregiver. 
And if you're a caregiver, you can't just give and give and give. You have to do the self-care for yourself. And, you know, I'm hearing that more with performers Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But yeah, if you're going into a profession, I would hope that there would be more um, coaching around the lifestyle Mm -hmm. of being within that profession so that people are better prepared and they will be able to sustain that career Mm -hmm. and not feel like disgruntled or drop out. And I hear this a lot about opera, that in opera, there's so much focus on the development of the art and the craft that there's not enough focus on, okay, business, managing a career, and mentoring in those kinds of areas. In my experience, even in the other musical genres, mm-hmm. the, the, it's something very similar um, where the, yeah. the focus is on the the artistic and musical development. So, mm-hmm. and even if they have classes to prepare for auditions, lifestyle, things like that, marketing and, and mm-hmm. all of that, it, it's very generic, you know, mm-hmm. very entrance level. So I work with a lot of um, uh, graduate and postgraduate singers. And that's one of the complaints that they have. Like, I got out of school, I can sing, now what do I do with this? <laughs> you right. know? Um, so yeah, that it certainly is a challenge. Right. Yeah, I have a question. Um, so, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a place where um, it was a, a small town. Everybody looked like me, so I'm kind of like glow in the dark pink. Um, so um, <laughs> that's actually what my daughter said. My, um, I, my husband's Puerto Rican. So when she was little, she said, you know, daddy's tan. She said, I'm, um, oh, she said, I'm coffee. She always said that she was the color of coffee. And she said, and mommy's pink. <laughs> so oh. I thought she could say white, but she said pink. So <laughs> and then I looked down, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing Don't like you a want kids are so literal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like my, my um, daughter is biracial. And what I will say is as somebody who grew up where all the norms looked the same like we all we all had the same kind of values not very diverse then i moved more downstate everything's you know much more diverse i end up marrying into a puerto rican family um and we live in the city and everything's like very colorful and but i will say from things that i experienced earlier and then coming into a more diverse cultural arena um there were things that i had to re-narrate um, and so now what as a mother of a biracial child as she's moving through my perspective is even more changed because you know like she has a different experience than I have you know because because of that so I think that that intersectionality of you know for her it's you know um being being a female and then being biracial um she doesn't even always have the boxes that she can check depending on how it's laid out um so I want to kind of ask you about like the you know you've been so beautifully open and transparent about your perspective based on your intersectionality the um the cultural and social issues that impact you and one of the questions i kind of thought i wanted to ask is for for some people who maybe aren't in a majorly diverse place but then are in charge of voices so voice teachers and speech language pathologists and practitioners who are in charge of voices that are very different maybe from their own what are some some insights or what are some some things that you would love for for them and us to know based on your perspective what are you seeing and what would you love to see yeah no that's 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 a really deep great question and i wish that i had the perfect answer to it but i'm going to try to answer it the best that i could you know and it's like you know in terms of of i think when we think about art and like you know as voice teachers and when we think about um speech language pathologists who specialize in voice i think we have to bring it back to just the patient slash client right mm-hmm. um having it be about the art and having it be about the person in front of you i think that the one thing that I never want to do, whether I'm working with a singing voice or I'm working with um, a speaking voice in the clinic or in my music studio, I never want to make that person sound like everyone else, right? And I, I think validating like how someone might feel about what's expected of them socially is really important. Um, you know, whether that's you know imposter syndrome, whether that's you know I should sound like Maria Callas, right? I, I think it should be validated because that's how that's how we start working on you know maybe unpacking it and seeing like what kind of led to that type of of um kind of thought process 
And I think everyone who is working in, out, you know, outside of a diverse population metropolitan area or so should be thinking about just allowing those feelings to come up in, in the room, but also allowing yourself to work with that patient or client um, to work on a voice that's salient for them, right? Work on a, vo that, a voice that expresses art, not expresses quality of the teacher, right? Because who, who wants that? Who wants to deal with that? Um, and yeah, I wish, I wish I could say it better, but I think that it really comes down to who's in front of you. Yeah, no, this is great because I mean, I, I've seen things where, I mean, I've been in, in like singing workshops, for instance, if, um, you know, say the majority of the group has had a, a common musical experience and somebody who hasn't had that same experience, you know, you're using a certain kind of language too. And then that mm -hmm. person says, oh, what does that mean? Or you know, and then everybody's like, oh, that means this, like, obviously, or mm -hmm. you see them kind of like, well, then they're not going to ask the question because they can tell that there's language going on. So I feel like one of the things that I would love to see is just um, being sensitive to the idea that that each individual has their own biography. And mm -hmm. yes, yeah, some of the, if, if there's a dominant group, they're going to have some similar like overlaps. But even within that, there's going to be um, their own stories. But making sure that the language that we use is welcoming to everybody. I mean, I went to a, a singing uh, workshop where um, everybody was like 20 and I was 30. <laughs> And I was like, I felt like I was 90 <laughs> and like, the, but the, but the clinician was talking about, you know, um, like very specific, like this is for young voices. And at 30, I was not that, but I, it's a weird thing. I know in this yeah. one, but, um, but anyway, it, it was very clear. And all of a sudden I, I felt the otherness. Um, and as a pink person, like, <laughs> like that was important to feel. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think the idea is that, um, and I'm not equating the same, so I, I want to make sure that that's like super clear. But it's it's the sense of I saw what it means when somebody in power in the room is not making sure that everyone's language and experiences and way of making meaning valued. I remember thinking, oh, I don't want to be part of that, you know, mm -hmm. and so um, I think the, the work that you're doing is like when I read into it, that idea of making a safe space for people to go and work on their voice, which already is vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, what when um, like in the clinic that you started, um, what do you do to make it a safe space for people to come to and work on their voice? Yeah, I was just talking about this with my laryngologist literally two days ago. So, you know, um, I think the first thing, especially, you know, the clinic that we founded was um, is, is focused to gender affirmative care. And I think the first thing that I tell patients on their consult is, hey, here's the limitation of working with me. I am cisgender. You know, that is a huge limitation. I, I want you to know that, you know, that's at the forefront. And I wish that we could have a transgender uh, individual a clinician, someone within our clinic to at least make that space feel like more inclusive. Um, but in the therapy room itself, it's just me. And you know, that that is a huge limitation. So sometimes saying that to patients, you know, makes them feel better. Um, just knowing that what I say is completely rooted in privilege of being a cisgender clinician, right? And, and knowing that- mm -hmm. And knowing that you value their experience and you feel somehow inadequate to ad address their experience. Just communicating that you value their experience is huge for mm -hmm. people who have had their um, experiences devalued. So mm -hmm. I would imagine that they would love that. I hope. I really do hope. You know, mm -hmm. it's, and I've had I've had patients tell me that you know they really appreciate hearing that. Um, so I keep doing it, and I I, I feel the need to do it um, mm -hmm. because I think that's where it starts. Just mm -hmm. talking about that big elephant in the room. In terms of other types of safety, you know, um, I make it known to them. 
you know, unfortunately, our um, institution still sometimes will list a dead name um, because of legal reasons on some of the documentation, not all, um, just due to insurance if there wasn't a legal um, name change. So, you know, just making all that known, um, I think, just because they could be, it could be triggering, it could be traumatizing. Um, so I don't, I don't want to do that. And um, I, I just want patients to be aware. And in terms of singing voice, you know, same thing. I, I, I want the patients to know that therapy session is great. It's a safe space. I, my biggest thing for working with singers and with the speaking voice too, I can't help you if you don't fall. I want to see patients fall in the room, right? Like not physically fall, but you know, <laughs> um, yeah. saying that for listeners. Um, but I, you know, if they don't make the dysphonia, right? If the dysphonic voice doesn't come out, we can't really address it, right? So sometimes if they're trying to be perfect, um, it's it's you can't generalize that all the time, right? You know, yeah, it, blunder with boldness, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, Kristen has the best lines. Like, oh, I know, Kristen. <laughs> I still need to make t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I told Geneva at my Asha concert, I actually, concert, at my Asha presentation, I actually used a quote of yours. Um, what? Lift yeah, as you I, climb. Uh, he said, lift, lift as you climb. climb. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to the podcast as I was on the plane there. Oh and I, yeah, and that I actually, actually does that was stolen. That's actually from <laughs> I researched it. Yeah, it's all advocacy good. group. And I believe actually, like of women of color, like it was their thing. Yes. So, yeah. but I didn't know it's that. It's still their thing. thing. And we yeah. did yeah. cite them in the first episode. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes. I had heard a woman say that, and I was like, that's the energy. That's it. Like, like we want to, we want to keep moving ahead and we want everybody as opposed to, I'm going to hold you back so I can get ahead. It's like, I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to pull you up. And when you get ahead, you pull me up and like, yep. let's just go. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. I literally oh, made it one whole slide to like <laughs> almost end my almost. talk. So I really owe it to you. <laughs> and to the founders of that quote. The founder, yes, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, Sean, one of the things that I, I love when you're when you're talking about your work is um at the like um this might not be exactly how you would phrase it, but in my perspective of looking at it is like making sure that person in front of you feels seen. And what is mm. more important than being seen? It is like the human heart is just longing for that like see and and value, you know? And I I feel like that oozes out of your work and to have a, a singer or a a patient come in and feel seen. And then once that happens, there's going to be trust and then we can move and, you know, it's all about freeing up that voice to say what we need to say in the world. So I love this. This is great. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy. I'm sure we're all like in that bubble, right? <laughs> you have to pop that bubble. We have to get it out there, right? Yeah. And, that's, yes. and, that, and yeah. one of the great things about these kinds of conversation is that iron sharpens iron. So even when we all agree on something, like Sean, the way you phrased a couple of things, it, it stretches my thinking. And, and Geneva, same thing. You asked some questions. I'm like, oh, you know. And so even when we agree, we come out because of these conversations sharper, you know, more more sparkly. Um, so I, I think that this is this is good work. This is good work that you're doing. So Sean, you have um, you have been practicing SLP for a while now. Two years? How long now? Oh yeah, I guess so. If you look at it that way, so like <laughs> a one-year post fellowship. So it's it hasn't been long, but yeah, it feels like forever. <laughs> okay, all right. So you made the big bold decision to continue on with your uh, doctorates. Tell me what prompted that decision. Yeah. So you know, if for those of you who don't know about New York, you know, I I live in the city. Um, I live in Queens, which is like. I, I think they call it the world city, right? You can get anything you want here, any type of food, um, any, you know, any type of experience culturally, you could find it here in, in Queens. And um, unfortunately, I was a pandemic baby during graduate school and I was a class of 2020 where all the voice fellowships were pulled. Um, so I think there were, and there weren't even as much as there are now. I think now they're like my student applied to, I think 12 last What? Year. Yeah, insane, <laughs> right? I think yeah. Yeah, I think during the pandemic, there were like three or four. 
I mean, um, and we're saying 12, like that's a lot, but yeah. I mean, it's better than three or four. It's better than three or four, right? So, <laughs> no. um, so you know, I I ended up at Stony Brook University Hospital. So, and it's, it's um, about 50 miles away from New York uh, City. So my drive to work every day is very long, um, but it's it's kind of like culture shock because we're in suburban, rural New York, right? Not right. what you think about when you think about New York City. Um, so of course, you know, when you get a voice fellowship, you have to go to the voice fellowship, right? Um, so, you know, I went I went to the fellowship at um, at Stony Brook and um, ended up working alongside a wonderful laryngologist. We both actually started to start, um, to continue the voice clinic there because the voice people just, um, were about to retire. So, um, yeah, so it worked out in our favor. And, um, you know, we, we were both met at a place where, um, it, it wasn't as up and coming as the clinics in New York, right? We were, um, met with some red tape, you know, um, who, and we have wonderful teams who help us out, um, and we've made a lot of strides. Um, but I think, I think the reason why I started my my doctorate was, um, I knew I didn't want to do a PhD. I will say that off the bat. I knew it. Um, my fiance is a PhD, and I saw the trauma he went through. And, you know, it's not, School is just traumatizing. It's just traumatizing, right? <laughs> but I also am not into research. Um, I'm into I'm into clinical work. So you know, I looked mm-hmm. into a clinical doctorate, and MGH had one um, that would work on process development. And here I am, a fellow with not much guidance under my belt in terms of what to do in in starting this type of clinic um, and navigating the roads. Um, And I figured that it would be a good place to get my feet wet. And I also started very late, you know, in in speech language pathology and voice, right? I was 30, I'm 32, I'm 32 now. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's something that I I knew I want, I want to eventually, further, uh, you know, my, my career in, in speech language pathology, I'll always stay at Stony Brook. I think I will stay. Um, so I, I just hope to make more gains in navigating administration, hopefully becoming part of the administrative team while still being a clinician. And I think that the, the clinical doctorate is going to help um, just expedite that for me, help me know the language to speak, help me know about, um, you know, the resources to pull from. Right, so you were thinking more about advanced practice and leadership, exactly. and you already had a taste of that setting up the clinic. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So as so as part of this um uh, the clinical doctorate at MGH, you put out this, which is how I became familiar with your work. You put out this really great little YouTube video that you had done on LinkedIn, and I was watching that. And I'm not a big LinkedIn person, and this just popped up in my feed, probably because someone that I know who knows you liked it or something. And I watched it, and I watched it a couple of times. I'm like, ah, this is perfect for the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> moving into our final segment, Agents or Practices, we usually talk about things that you know free up voices. But one of our three major focuses for this podcast is trauma-informed voice care. And one of the tenants of trauma voice trauma-informed voice care is to respond to trauma through policies, practices, and procedures. So will you tell us a little bit about this Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act? Um, Because this is a policy that supports um, trauma-informed voice care. Um, Tell us about your advocacy for this. Yeah, so, you know, this is this is actually a video that I made for a course of mine about oh. access and delivery of healthcare, right? And, you know, we were all, you know, so I, I have to just say that. You know, it's, yes. uh, it, it's really a product of things that I never probably would have gone through in my first few years as a clinician. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, the assignment was to go in, find a policy that you want to talk about and make, you know, some type of outreach for it, make some type of call to action. And, you know, at first I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, you know, something I have to invest a lot of time into. I don't know where to start with policy and procedure. I have, you know, I was very naive as to, and I think most of us in the clinical world and, and music world are, right? We don't really know about these things. We're not trained about this in graduate school. And, um, you know, so I, I did some research and I found this um, this piece of, um, oh gosh, the word is evading me, I told you. Is so it legislation? 
<laughs> so, you know, um, I found it. And actually, Asha has a wonderful um, uh, advocacy page where you can just go and see what is being advocated and lobbied for on the ASHA website. So I found that to be extremely helpful in, you know, just finding information about what, how this is clinically relevant, how this is something um, uh, that's already in motion. And ASHA actually set up um, a, a pre-made letter to send to everyone in politics who is in charge of getting this passed along. Um, so, you know, this bill itself looks at how do we recruit and how do we um, retain? Because the retainment is just as important as the recruitment, because as all of us know, you know, college is not, it's not fun, it's not easy, and it's not cheap. It's not cheap. <laughs> you know, I'm not even talking about the tuition. You know, when you're in a clinical program, there's you know, you got the books, you got the, you got to travel to your, your uh, clinical placements, you have to get the attire, um, which is, which is very expensive, you know, and <laughs> I'm not going to go through the trauma of that, you know, but that, you know, having someone tell you, like, you don't look um, professional enough, or you're not professional is, is something that could worsen retainment, right? So, right. You know, the recruitment portion is great, but the retention is what's really important about, I, I think, this bill. Um, so this bill looks at how do we find diverse populations? What could we set aside in terms of scholarships and funding for these populations? And how do we maintain that all throughout um, their studies? And it's not only looking at graduate schools, but also looking at the um, um, the, the prerequisites, right? So finding ways to get students throughout uh, their course of study. And, you know, this is, I don't, I mean, I'll talk about why it's important because, you know, not everyone's a part of ASHA and not everyone's a voice therapist. But well, let, know, me, let me I, set you up a oh, little yeah. bit. Yeah. We've been throwing around the word ASHA a lot, and I should make it clear because not everyone is a speech pathologist who listens. So, ASHA is just the American Speech Language and Hearing Association, which is the number one um, national association for speech language pathologists and audiologists. So all your voice specializing clinicians are in the American Speech Language Hearing Association or ASHA. And so the one thing that I just learned about um, ASHA is that only 1% of SLPs are voice specializing. 1%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and of that 1%, you know, overall in ASHA, you would say maybe 3, 3.5% of um, uh, uh, speech language pathologists are African American or Black American, and eight, under eight percent are um, are um, BIPOC individuals. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, there's not much representation within the field of speech language pathology of the diverse populations that make up the United States. I suspect that BIPOC representation within the voice specialty is even lower than. And oh. I know you're encountering that. Um, and so this is why a bill like this is exciting to me because, you know, as goes the representation, so goes the um, embracing from the population in general. So, um, so for example, let me make that a little bit clearer. When a young girl sees, you know, that the first lady of the United States was, um, Michelle Obama, she can now have that dream in her mind. Oh, I could be the first lady. Or, or now that we have um, our vice president as African American slash uh, Indian, uh, BIPOC individual young girl might say, "Oh, one day I'll be." You know, and so that's why we say representation matters. So a bill like this that is designed to increase or maintain representation is so very important. Um, talk to us some more about that. <clears throat> Yeah, because, <laughs> you, know, you know, when we go to some of our conferences, right, like the Fall Voice Conference, which has a lot of the voice specializing speech language pathologists, uh, teachers and, um, and laryngologists and ENTs, you know, there aren't a lot of colored people in the room. I remember, <laughs> I remember locking eyes with someone um, of color, like, who I who I didn't know, and I was just like, I don't know this person. That's weird, right? So <laughs> I made my way over and I introduced myself because you really know all the colored people within voice. You know, it's 
<laughs> we're all a family, even though we we barely see one another, even though we don't even talk to one another, right? We were like, oh, I, I know you, I see you, right? And, and voice, I mean, in fairness, voice is that way in general because voice is only one percent, so everybody knows everybody. <laughs> but it's even more so, right? When you're, <laughs> yeah. When you're so that being said, you know, um, you know, I'll talk about specifically with voice why I think this bill is really important. Mm -hmm. When we get someone who is not English speaking in the voice clinic, um, when we see them for a consult in voice clinic, technically, I, I don't want to see someone who is not English speaking. It's not ethical for me to do that because the sounds, the voicing patterns, they're all different across languages. So I refer out whenever I have someone who is Spanish speaking. And of course, if the patient is unable to meet um, someone who is Spanish speaking because of distance, because you know of some other barrier, I will see that patient because they they should have an option. But you know, it should be provided by someone who speaks their language because voice and language are. You know, the, dysphagia, I feel like you can get away with it, right? Swallowing problems, you can get away with it, um, but but not so much with voice. And I'm referring a, lo a lot of patients, you know, I, I think a few a month. And, you know, it, it sucks, right? No one wants to, to say, hey, you know, we unfortunately think that you would be better off with this therapist, right? Because then that requires a whole new consult, a whole new evaluation. It's a, it, it's a barrier to care within itself. Right. And it's hard because a lot of the Spanish speaking um, therapists are in New York City, 50 miles away, and their only option is teletherapy. And not every patient wants to go through teletherapy, especially the older patients and the singing voice uh, therapy patients, right? So that being said, you know, that is only one example out of a plethora of examples. It's good um, to have the option, but like you said, you know, in the New York City area, you have an option at least. In other parts of the country, there is no option. There's not the, the diversity. So, you know, that's why I like trauma-informed care because it helps people to build some of the cultural competence, cultural humility needed to work with people um, in a way that's not re-traumatizing or triggering. Um, but there are, like you said, specific skills around culture and language and patterns within the culture and language um, that people should know when they're treating someone. I think so. And I also think for the clinicians, when we think about trauma-informed care and we think about graduate students, when we think about students who are going through the program, who are looking at students who are not like them, uh, there's already a sense of othership, right? And othering. And um, and you know this 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 bill also I think sets up mentoring right so there's mentoring of students by mentors right people who can actually aid them through emotionally the program and when you think about trauma when we think about the way that the body responds to trauma and the way that carries into sometimes the therapy room right a, a patient could be, I'm sorry, a, a clinician could be triggered as well. We don't know yes. a clinician's story. We don't know who, you know, even though we're going in for a therapy session, you know, there there are opportunities for triggerings right. and um, triggerings. I'm making up words left and right. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important for us to know how to navigate those things and to know that, hey, you know, here are my resources. This was my, my mentor in, in college, I, in graduate school. I'm going back, I'm giving them a call. Right. I've done that. I've done that because it's, it's, you have those days where you just need to reach out. And having the social support of someone who has a similar lived experience or who can, who has had experiences, even your experience, Kristen, where you said you felt othered because you were the 30 year old in, in the 20 year, in the room full of 20 year olds, you know, <laughs> having that experience helps you to relate. Um, and have be able to show more compassion and understand where the person is coming from. Um, well, what's great and, about it is, it is it violates your expectation, and then you have to do other kinds of thinking based on on things like that. So, um, yeah. So this is great, Sean, and I love how you were like, "How am I going to do this advocacy?" And you made the YouTube video, you, you you distributed it on LinkedIn, and now you have another opportunity to talk about it. So um, is there anything else that you want to say about this bill before we kind of start wrapping up? Go to Asha. <laughs> Go to Asha. In the show notes, you'll, you'll find my video. There's a link that you can click on to um, 
you know, get that letter out to the people who are important, who can be a game changer. But guess what? You're a game changer too. Every one of us, we're game changers, right? If you put that hat on, you have the ability. And I think that, you know, doing something like this, even though it's a school assignment, I'm galvanized, right? So, you know, I think just starting it once, you kind of get your feet wet and you're kind of just like, oh gosh, got to get the stir cell battery back in, right? Because it opens up doors for you that you didn't think that you could open. Put put in put in maybe about five hours of time. See if see if you can make something like this, and see if you could just make a Facebook post. Right, It'd take twenty minutes. Um, but check out the ASHA advocacy page. Any SLPs out here who are familiar with ASHA, I think that that's something that's right there at our fingertips. That if it's important to you, just share it. Right. That's um, wonderful. Yeah. I love this, this modeling of how to be a trauma informed clinician, you know, advocate for policies is a really big part of trauma informed care because it's the traumas, it's the policies that shape the environment that we all live in. Yeah, so that the environment can be safe. So this is wonderful. Yeah. And even, you know, I, I might add one more thing in like even looking at your own policies at work. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea about mine and where to find them until I started doing some digging and I did, and I made edits to them uh, just to be more inclusive to our gender diverse populations. That's, you can start there, right? It sounds scary, procedures and policies. It sounds scary, so I don't, I don't blame anyone who, who agrees, um, but you know, it, it's something that you could change right now as a clinician, as a voice teacher within your own facility. Look at your policies and look at um, the biases that may have been there when they were written and see if you could change them to make them more inclusive if possible. Yes, and whenever we think about policies, we should think in this policy, is there any way for me to exclude or limit or create a barrier for vulnerable populations mm -hmm. because they have a hard time breaking in? So that's really, really good advice. Always think about exclusivity when it comes to policies, inclusivity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, just to sum up, in this episode, we talked with Sean Moon Sammy about intersectionality, representation, and responding to trauma through policies. The Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act of 2021 is designed to increase representation of underrepresented groups within the rehabilitation professions, such as speech language pathology, among others. Thank you so much for bringing this important work to light, Sean. To our listeners, you can find links to Sean's work in our show notes. We wish you all a happy holiday season. We're going to take a brief intermission and we'll record more episodes of the Agentic Voice podcast in January after the new, new year. So take care. <laughs>